to 47. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. Uh, Kiddos, we're glad that you're here. Uh, If you're a guest, both this service and our Sunday service for Easter are going to be family services. So we've got all of our kids in here. If it gets a little bit loud, that's okay. It's going to be fine. It's not going to be awkward. We're not going to... It's fine. Kids are going to be kids. And so... uh, We are grateful to God that the kids are in the room uh, this evening. Let me say a quick prayer for us, and then we'll talk for a few minutes about the cross. Father, as we behold the cross of your beloved son, Jesus, would you help us cry out as the Roman centurion did? Truly, this man is the son of God. Would you grant your people here quick repentance of sin that is accompanied by joy? Would you grant us tonight deeper affections for you and grow our faith as we reflect upon the sin-forgiving, sin-canceling cross of Christ? Holy Spirit, would you quicken the hearts of those who do not know the love, forgiveness, and kindness of Jesus to turn to him in repentance and faith for the first time tonight? We expectantly and humbly pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Why did Jesus die? On one hand, Jesus was delivered up by sinful men, by sinful, envious, cowardice, even bloodthirsty men. The Roman soldiers, we don't know a lot about the Roman soldiers, what their disposition was in the midst of their torture of Jesus, but we do know that they were compliant to the orders that they had been given to uh, brutally beat, spit upon, and crucify Jesus. So we know on one hand that the Roman soldiers had a hand in the murder of Jesus Christ. We know that the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders also had a hand in the the murder and killing of Jesus Christ. 
Acts 3, 12 through 15 says, Peter saw it and addressed the people, men of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And listen to what Peter says. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So the Roman soldiers had a hand in killing Jesus. The Jewish people and the Jewish leaders had a hand in killing Jesus. Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' own 12, had a hand in killing Jesus. Judas, while being one of the 12 original disciples of Jesus, that's a disciple as a student, a follower, out of a lust for money, that superseded any actual love for Jesus and being possessed by the devil himself betrayed Jesus into the hands of the priests. And then the priests, out of envy, handed Jesus over to Pilate. And then Pilate, out of cowardice, handed Jesus over to the Roman soldiers who crucified him. So while all of these parties are responsible for the death of the Son of God, Underneath it all, and this is really important, we've talked about this a lot for those who have been with us through the book of Mark, especially in the final week of Jesus. Underneath it all was not a God who is out of control. Nobody, Jesus says, took his life from him. Jesus willingly laid down his life under his Father's goodwill and for the salvation of his bride. Anyone who would turn from sin and trust in him and his finished work, he willingly laid his life down. He says, nobody took my life from me. He's never out of control. Circumstances are never too big for Jesus. They're never outside of his sovereign, powerful, good hands. Jesus laid his life down. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. That means Jesus is the God of Psalm 23. Think about Psalm 23 for those who know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's Jesus. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Listen to what he says. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, the son of God loved me and gave himself for me. I'm curious because I struggle with this personally, that many of us know Christ died for his people, but not many of us know that Christ died for you. Like for you individually, for you as a person. Paul says, the son of God loved me. He gave himself up for me. Isaiah 53, 2 says that he poured out his life unto death. Romans 8, 32. God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. What a promise. 
It wasn't primarily the Roman soldiers. It wasn't primarily the Jewish people or the Jewish priests. It wasn't primarily Pilate. Jesus willingly laid his life down on behalf of and for his people. What does this have to do with us tonight? Um, if If we only learn to read the Bible as a set of binoculars then it'll be easy to just see the fault in all of these other parties involved and miss where you and I fit in. So the Bible is God's word. It's historically true and accurate, and it's living and active. Meaning that the Bible also serves as a mirror of sorts, revealing our sin and our need for the Savior. So listen to this and thinking about these people who had a hand in crucifying the Son of God. You and I, like Pilate, have cowardice in our hearts. In order to attempt to avoid the pain that could and does at times come as a result of fully fully devoting ourselves to following Jesus as Lord, we put one foot in and one foot out. The opinions of others, trials of life, or allure of sin become more all-encompassing than the satisfaction of joy and joy that comes from knowing, treasuring, and following Christ and all of life. And so like Pilate, there is fickleness and cowardice in our hearts too. Pilate just couldn't figure out what to do. Is he innocent? Is he guilty? I don't think he's guilty. I think he's innocent, but these guys are going to be frustrated if I do this. And so Pilate was, as we've talked about, a ball of anxiety. The opinions of men, the fear of man ruled his heart. So it goes with us as well, right? We, like the Jewish leaders, are offended at the notion that there is an authority higher than ourselves. We fight against Jesus' claim that you and I cannot solve the problem of sin or be reconciled to God by our own good deeds, but that we desperately need him to be our rescue. And so we rage against the reality that the greatest problem you and I face, our greatest enemy in life, is not outside of us, our marriage, our children, our job, our circumstances. The greatest problem that you and I have, friends, is inside of us. Our own sinful hearts. We, like Judas, are often blinded by our own pride and greed and are willing to remove or destroy whatever or whoever is in our way to achieve or maintain the comforts we so love deeply. We're no better than any of these men. John Stott, one author who wrote a book called The Cross of Christ, says, before we see the cross as something done for us, we must see it as something done by us. This is not something that you and I can just look back over the course of history and say, look at what these evil people did. This is something you and I did too. And if we're to really taste the all-satisfying, greatest news in the universe, most liberating, freeing, burden-shattering reality in the universe of what Christ accomplished on the cross for us, we have to understand and be honest that the cross was something also done by us. So what's under the surface of this? Talked about the sinful man having a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus, but underneath that being this reality that God the Father sent the Son and God the Son willingly went in obedience to God the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit to die on the cross. Nobody took his life. He laid it down on his own accord, absorbing the wrath of the Father on behalf of his people. 
So what's under the surface of that? What did his death accomplish for those who repent and believe? And this is what I want you to really hone in on. What, what did the death of Jesus accomplish for those who repent and believe by God's grace? Number one, Jesus died out of love for his people and for our good. The cross of Jesus accomplishes what is good for us. Romans 5, 8, for God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What Christ did on the cross was for our good. Number two, Jesus died for us so that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, for, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So the, the cross of Jesus does not just accomplish for you and I the forgiveness of our sins. The cross does something so much more than that. The cross actually brings us to God. For those who turn from sin and trust in Christ, we are brought out of not just the punishment of sin, but the penalty and power of sin to God. It's kind of like, as one author said, um, if you're in a 30-year jail sentence uh, and your, your day of freedom has arrived and the bars open and you step out of the jail cell, that's one thing. But if the bars open after 30 years and you step out of the jail cell into the arms of the one that you love, that's a totally different thing. Christ liberates us to God, to be reconciled to God forever for all who would repent and believe. Number three, the cross of Christ means that Jesus died for our sins. Hebrews 9.26, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. At the cross, Jesus became sin for us And so not only forgives our sin completely, but takes sin, its penalty and power, away from us completely. Jesus died for our sins. Our sin is the greatest problem that you and I have, and Jesus died for our sin. Our sin separates us from God, earns us uh, the condemnation and wrath of God, and Jesus on the cross takes our condemnation, takes our wrath in love, willingly, in our place. He dies for our sins. And then finally, Jesus, the cross of Jesus means that Jesus died our death. He died our death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So death in the Bible is portrayed as divine judgment on human disobedience. That doesn't mean every time somebody dies, it's because they personally have done something sinful in that moment. But as a result of sin, Original sin from Genesis chapter three, all of God's good creation has been fractured and death is a reality that you and I face. Jesus didn't just die physically. However, Jesus died the ultimate and final death that you and I deserve. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Second Corinthians five would say that he became sin for us. So that in him, you and I, by faith in him, might become the righteousness of God. We might have abundant life with him forever through faith in him. So here's how I want to close. How will you and I respond to this? How do we respond to this? Let me summarize it again for you uh, one last time. And then I I want to talk about the Roman centurion for about a minute. Um, You and I... Because of our sin, John chapter 3 would say, apart from God's grace, you and I 
are under the condemnation of God. Ephesians chapter two would say that we are dead in sin, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And Paul goes on to say, by grace, you've been saved through faith. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. Jesus went to the cross and died the death that you and I deserve, absorbed the wrath that you and I deserved once for all, was buried, put into a tomb, and three days later resurrected, triumphing, triumphant over sin, death, Satan, and hell forever. And now he calls all people to repent of their sins and believe upon him. It's open. It's available. Like whatever baggage you come in with tonight, if you're not a Christian, it's available. That you would turn from your sin and trust in the Savior. And for those of us who are Christians, we remember the death of Christ. That there's something in our minds, I think, in which we think the longer we walk with with Jesus, the more time we have to forget the sufficiency of what Christ did on the cross. And so we know that we're justified by grace but many of us don't know that we're sanctified by grace, that we're sustained by grace. And so we we look back. So how will you and I respond tonight? Whether you're a non-Christian or a Christian, the proper response is the same. Repent and believe upon Christ and his work on the cross for sinners and sufferers. Repent of your sins and believe upon Christ and his work on your behalf, on our behalf for sinners and sufferers. Mark 15, 39 says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So friend, would you say the same tonight? As the Roman centurion, truly, this man was the son of God. He is who he said he was. He's totally and forever faithful. We really have just three options. We can rage against Jesus because we believe that we're without sin and in no need of a savior. We can run from Jesus out of fear that because of our sin, he will not embrace and accept us. Or we can fall before him joyfully as Lord, Savior, friend, God, and King, trusting that his death is sufficient to cover all of our sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let's reflect on this as we transition into prayer now. So if you guys would pray with me.